Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and aesthetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor with over 16 years experience in facial aesthetics. And I'm David Siegel, an entrepreneur and business mentor with over 20 years of experience in our industry. Our podcasts are aimed at industry professionals and any information or advice given is general in nature. You should consult with a healthcare provider before undergoing any treatment. You can also subscribe to us on Patreon for on-demand content for injectable business education. Hello, how are you going, buddy? I'm very well. Did you have a good morning? What I have did. you been up to? I did. Coffees, emails, admin, you know. You know usual shit. You, you, Different you, day. Usual shit. You've moved house? I have moved house. It's been unbelievably tiring, but we're 90% there. So life is good. Kids started their new school. Daddy dropped them off this morning and kind of feels like we're in a bit of a groove now. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Nothing like moving house to start off the new year. Well, it was certainly <laughs> unexpected. Thank you, old landlord, for doubling our rent. And we nice. said, uh, that's not going to work. There you go. Oh, well, so, you're, on the, you're on the lower North Shore now, so... We're getting posh. <laughs> More posh. You're going to move here one day, you said. Eventually. Eventually, I will get there. Um, what's been happening in Patreon this week? Patreon? Uh, well, last week, um, I did some videos on lip filler right. migration and dissolving. So yep. that was kind of an interesting one for the guys to watch. Um, you did some consulting with Nadia Zanko, our I did. previous podcast guest. Yeah, I did. And I've got some exciting stuff that I'm recording actually today. So Cassandra Smith, whose episode hasn't been published yet, but by the time <laughs> this comes out, it will have been. Um, so she's my ex-business partner from laser clinics Australia days and she used to run our clinics down in Canberra. She's an absolute operational guru and um, we had a chat with her on the podcast talking about how to maximize retail sales opportunities. So part of that goes into how's your clinic set up for retail sales? How's your skincare product laid out? What things are you using to direct people's eyes and the way they move through your clinic and mm. how many times they see things on their journey through your space and how that impacts the psychology of how they buy. And that was a really interesting discussion. And so I've got a couple of sessions booked this afternoon with our lovely Patreons who've uh, decided to be guinea pigs and take photos and videos of their clinic. And we're going to do uh, basically a live consulting session with Cassandra, hopefully giving them some tips and pointers on how they can maybe rearrange things, add mm. elements to maximize retail sales opportunities and also just create a better flow for the patient. So it's not only just about skincare, it's about how does your space function as a retail space, yeah. which makes it conducive with people feeling comfortable and seeing the things you want them to see so that they go ahead and, and spend more money in your business. Obviously not pushing things on them they don't need, but just making it a, an experience that's more conducive with sales. That's fun. And so we've got about uh, two or three people lined up in our group. So if anyone's interested in that, you can go and check out our Patreon and lots of other content that we've got going on there, but that will be up in the next few days. Really? How, how if they want to join Patreon, how do they find out, Doug? Well, that's a great reminder for me because there have been a lot of people who signed up or presumably thinking they signed up, but they're on the free version. Right. That basically gives them not much. Yep. So if you scroll down just a little bit more you'll see two tiers yeah one is ten dollars and that yeah. is essentially uh, like a just a, a bit of support for us and the podcast yep. doesn't really get you content but the the main one is called patreon tier fifty dollars a month uh you get ten percent off if you sign up for the whole year yeah and basically you get all of the content all the whatsapp groups all the videos all your business stuff everything yeah and today we're talking about business we are with our lovely guest dr caroline taylor walker all the way from torquay in victoria how are you caroline hi yeah i'm good thank you so you're originally from the UK, but you've moved to Melbourne, Victoria. Well, you're not in Melbourne. Is not is it part of Melbourne, or it's yeah. not just part of Victoria yeah, outside not. of Melbourne? Yeah, further down the coast, of right. a good hour and a half away from Melbourne. Hour and a half we've, drive. Um, yep. We're probably seen as pretty rural, to be honest. Yep. Okay. Um, how how and why did you choose there, and and why did we why did you move country like me? I just end up here. 
Um, I came out to Australia for lifestyle change. Um, and actually, when I first got here, I had to do GP work. And as you, others are probably aware, when you come out as a GP, you've got to work in areas of need. Mm. So that kind of brought me down to the Geelong region. Yep. Um, and I just wanted that beach lifestyle. It was one of the reasons I came out here. Yep. I'm from London originally, so the the transfer, I suppose, to Melbourne wouldn't have would have just been like being in London. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we then found Torquay and um stayed there. Um. And look, at the time when I was here, there wasn't any cosmetic places in in the region. So I suppose I was I was kind of stuck in the region for the memorandum that I had to do for GP. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they didn't offer what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually ended up setting up a clinic, uh, basically to be able to do what I wanted, um, in the area that I had to live in. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay. Before we go too much further, just to sort of, we'll rewind a little bit. So this, if it's not obvious mm. to people that are listening, this is a business of injecting episode. Chapter 12. <clears throat> Chapter 12. And so... You're part of our Patreon group as well, and you you sort of um, put your hand up and volunteered to come on and talk to us about your business. So obviously, these episodes are always centralized or you know centered around aesthetic medicine and cosmetic treatments, but the business side of things. So how did you get started? What was the concept behind your business? How does it run? Things that you're doing well. Maybe you can share some secrets to your success. Things you've learned you might do different if you had your time again, and just sort of delving into the commercial aspect of these aesthetic clinics. So just to sort of orient, orientate people before we get too far down the track. So anyway, carry on. <laughs> well, I wanted to sort of uh, start from where you ended. So you did some GP work, moved from the UK, and then when did you start injecting, and and how did that all develop for you? Yeah, so I started injecting in Australia. So I suppose my background. Um, when I went into medicine, I wanted to do plastic surgery. Mm. Uh, so I did my initial training in the UK, started um, my surgical training rotations. And when I was doing that, I suppose I realized it wasn't the long-term career that I wanted. Mm. I think I've heard similar from both genders, but definitely as a female, it wasn't um, open to the balance of life at the time. And it was taught in a very much of a humiliation kind of way. Uh, I felt very lonely. There wasn't much teamwork. So when I was, and then when I was looking at my future in the UK, it was when I was 40, 50, 60, I'd still be working 24 hour shifts, nighttime, daytime, wouldn't be family. So I had a bit of a crisis and didn't really know what to do because it was procedural work that I wanted to do. And this was this would be like 20 years ago now. So there wasn't much in the cosmetic industry at that stage. So then I came across skin cancer work. So one of the pools coming over here as well was learning about skin cancer. So I thought I would, in the UK, to do any procedure work, you needed a fellowship. So I just, I did GP to get a fellowship. <laughs> and then I came out here to learn about skin cancer. And when I got here, uh, cosmetics started creeping up a little bit. So Visa-wise, I had to work in GP land, so I did GP work four days a week, and then I started injecting one day a week at a local clinic in Geelong. Yeah. Um, and there is where I um, did my training. And at that time, it was just through the drug reps. So the drug reps would just come to the business and teach you. Interestingly there, I learned something that I then am aware of in my business. So Interesting, they were quite concerned that I would leave and set up my own place. So to prevent me from doing that, and I'd never said that I wanted to set up my place, 
that wasn't on my radar at that time. Um, but actually to prevent me from doing that, they restricted my training. Mm. Um, and that actually is what caused me to leave <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they were, they were holding me back. They were um, teaching me everything I wanted to know about. And, and I found without understanding everything holistically, I couldn't, I couldn't um, give what I needed to my client. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I actually ended up leaving there because I was being restricted. And there are a couple of other funny kind of dodgy little mm. things happening too that I had to kind of leave for. And that's when I ended up having to start, oh, I looked at starting my own clinic to be able to do, yeah, what I mm. enjoyed at that time. Your um, story about training in the UK just filled me with all of those mm. feelings that I used to have. Yeah. It's... Um, <laughs> It's so brutal and it's so yeah. demoralizing and I completely understand why you left. Where, where did you train in, in the UK or around London? Where were you? Uh, so I actually went to uni in Southampton. Yeah. So then I did initial um, jobs around that area, so Bournemouth and Paul. Um, and then I moved up to um, Leicester. Okay. Um, yeah. It's funny, I actually had a call from someone who I've not spoken to since hospital days and he like you was following a plastic surgery sort of path got all the way to sort of fairly senior registrar level and said I've had enough of this I, oh, I, I don't want to do this <laughs> so actually we, yeah. we had a phone call literally last night and he was asking me all these questions about how to move to Australia he's now left medicine he's now doing market market um consultancy uh mm. and just uh, was totally over it so that's such a common story of uh yeah, having that dream sure. to be a surgeon and then going it's actually mm -hmm. not worth it mm. so yeah can we just talk a little bit about um the restriction of training um from a business perspective yeah. this is something that i talk to my my consulting clients a lot mm -hmm. business owners who have those fears around bringing someone into their business, teaching them all their intellectual property and then them going and becoming competition. So I understand that the concerns and the fears around that are quite real um, and they should be spoken about um, and addressed up front. And I think that it's, it's sort of looking at the situation potentially the wrong way around. I think the whole idea is to find good people, attract them to your business and give them a reason to stay. Um, mm. If you identify those people, how do you set up a long-term relationship where everyone's benefiting with the arrangement that you've agreed upon? So whether that's them potentially getting shares in the business or some sort of equity or something, career progression, whatever it is, you know, different things motivate different people. So I think for you know, business owners listening to this, you know, that fear is real. You, sh you should think about that. You should protect your business. But how do you do it in a way that comes from rather than hitting someone with a stick is, is sort of present them with the honey? or the, the incentive to stay with you. So how do you align your interests so that there's a long-term relationship? Um, I think in terms of restricting training, and maybe Jake can talk to this as well, one, something that's dawned upon me, even as someone that's not medically trained, but having you know employed people in this space and, and going through the process of getting them skilled up in this industry, I think as a whole, we're doing it too quickly. Mm. And so I think that you know doing a course that goes for a few days, maybe to a few weeks, that seems to be both ends of, of the training spectrum. It's either a couple of days or a few weeks. It doesn't seem to extend beyond that in almost all cases. And we're expecting people to learn how to do talks, perhaps facial anatomy, uh, understanding and comprehension and how, to, how it applies to aesthetics, fillers, collagen stimulators, 
threat. Like there's so many treatment modalities and, and, the, and the area of the specialty has become, become so complex and deep. I think it's practically impossible mm. to teach someone in that period of time. So I guess I understand the, the training restriction, but not from perspective of wanting to stifle your ability to advance. It's more around yeah. how do you set up a, a training regime that gives people enough time to master a single skill set before you flood them with multiple modalities and, and, and you know, it does get really complex mm-hmm. really quickly. So um, I just wanted to address that. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Jake. Well, but, yeah. I'm keen to sort of hear what, what, what the chat was with Caroline and her previous employer. Like, did you flag uh, well, that's awesome, but how am I going to progress? And and how did it end eventually? What did you say to them? Yeah, I did. And and the things I was talking about is quite basic. It's um, it, it's really hard. And and I think now being a business owner, I can fully understand where they're coming from. And it's a it is a double edged sword. And I think it's one of the problems with the industry as well is that it's up to I suppose myself as the business owner to train my staff, which in any other area of medicine, that's not that's not the norm. Mm. And I suppose it depends what your boss is like or your mm-hmm. seniors are like in regards to training as to the extent and the quality of that training that you get. So it can um, it's a really difficult um, area. But with myself personally, so uh, it was run through the drug reps. So the drug reps would come in and then we would start learning something and then they would actually say to me, oh, I can't teach you the next bit because they've told me not to um <laughs> and yeah so i was always kind of left mm, nearly hanging. yeah yeah nearly there but didn't quite get those final spots and um yeah interesting i did bring it up with the um with the business owner <laughs> say it without um putting anyone in it but I, I did i did bring it up with the doctor in charge i suppose and um they basically said unfortunately that's how we run it mm. um and um that's like i can't i can't do anything about it um he was very separate to the to the business mm. um and it was run by the nurses really and i think um I, that was potentially a, a problem so uh, do you think there was some um, some inter-injector jealousy as well? It wasn't just the business. Do you think that individuals felt a bit threatened by a new person coming in as well? Yeah, I don't know. They they did openly say that they they were worried that if I knew too much, I would just leave. And now I'm saying that that wasn't on my idea at all. And and ironically, I feel myself if I was somewhere that. I was getting everything that I needed. Why, like, why would I, why would I leave the, to go in somewhere and be supported and be trained and get a nice salary and then be able to leave and not worry about what staff are turning up the next day. And if you've got enough money to pay everyone, all those added elements of a business. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be amazing. Yeah. It's a difficult one. Cause I said, I, I understand from the business owner's perspective, why they mm. do that, and in some instances, I've I've recommended to to my to my consulting clients who are business owners in this space is to slow down the development. One of one of the benefits to that is that you do slow down someone's ability to leave, but that that is more of a byproduct of just wanting to train them properly, properly, and allowing them time yeah. to digest. Yeah. And then the issue of longevity within the business, I think a lot of that comes from upfront discussions. So. Mm. One of the things that I sort of learned later in, in my years of, of owning these businesses was that just to have really upfront, frank discussions with people and say, look, what is mm-hmm. your medium to long-term goal? Like, 
people don't stay in jobs forever. I understand if this is potentially a short-term thing for you, but what are the rules of engagement? How are we going to communicate with each other if and when the time comes that you decide that you want to move on? And so then everyone knows, and there's, no, there's like that elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about and no one wants to have the confrontational discussion and then things get misunderstood, misconstrued, people do things, people interpret it a certain way in their relationship that could have ended quite nicely and amicably without anyone feeling screwed over, then becomes this really toxic sort of misconstrued situation that really didn't need to go down that path. So I think it's having upfront discussions, making it okay for people to come and talk to you and, and you accept that they might not be there forever, but when they do it, to do it in the right way. But if they are the right people, that you've got opportunities in place where you can essentially provide them with career progression and helping them reach their financial and business goals if they do mm. want to be someone that potentially becomes a partner in the business or has some sort of share in the overall success of what everyone's contributing. Yeah. What do you think, Jake? Um, yeah, I mean, it, this comes up in our WhatsApps a lot and maybe we'll get into more detail with yeah. Caroline's sort of take on it, but having an open discussion before you employ yeah. someone and setting those boundaries of expectations, career path, mm -hmm. what don't you like about yeah. this job and so on. So you don't sort of get into a, uh, you know, a month into a job and, and, and either the employer or the employee thinks, shit, this yeah. is not really what I wanted. So maybe we can touch on that a yeah. bit later. But so did you actually have an aspiration to then own your own business or were you quite comfortable working for someone, Caroline? Uh, at that time, because I'd only been in Australia at that time for about six, coming up to 12 months. Mm. So really I was just finding my feet. I had no, I had no plans for anything really. <laughs> I, I kind of knew I, I was in a new country. I potentially didn't even know if I was going to stay here forever. Yeah. My aim, I suppose, was to try and, I was finding a career, I suppose, at that time, because I just decided, I decided I hadn't, I didn't want to do plastics anymore. And I'd got my GP fellowship which opened up, allowed me to do what I wanted in life, but I didn't know what I actually wanted to do. So, um, yeah, at that time, I wasn't really sure. I I knew I definitely preferred hands-on things. I wasn't very good at just sitting and talking and consulting people all day and writing prescriptions. I had to be hands-on, but I didn't really have any other plans. When I started doing the injecting, I did really enjoy it, and I knew I enjoyed procedural work, um, but I definitely didn't have plans to set up my own entity at that time and definitely not in another country that I'd only been in. <laughs> I, I think we'd only had a bank account. I only like was working out the differences between a check and a savings account when you <laughs> give your card across it and the checkout. Yeah. You know, there was um, I still don't so understand many the other difference. things. <laughs> you know, and trying to say super. I was like, what's super instead of pension? And yeah. like uh, GST, like there were so many things I had no idea about. Medicare, nothing. Like, it was all yeah. Yeah. Rabbits and headlights. <laughs> so what, what, what was your personal situation at the time? I know you've got three children now. Um, I'm assuming you, yeah. you have a partner. Um, mm -hmm. and so what, what, like, what was your personal life at that yeah, moment? Uh, yeah. At that time I'd come out with, my, with a boyfriend yep. who, who I'm now married to. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So no children at that point so, in time. No, no. Right. Okay. So let's fast yeah. forward to the concept of, of starting your own mm -hmm. business. So you, you have now started, or you started a business called Ministry of Skin. That's the name of your business. And so just take us through the the genesis of that. So you've left this place, you've decided that, you know, that wasn't for you. You didn't like having your training and progression halted. And so now you open up your own thing. So just walk us through that, that thought process and, yeah. and how you went about getting started. Yeah. Well, yeah, I kind of discovered there wasn't really anywhere else to work. And also, 
I suppose I had some vision or missions in mind that I wanted to ensure in place. At the time, I felt that the industry didn't have any regulations and standards and was being run however that person chose. And so I really wanted to set up a place that was quite obviously run by a doctor and had those medical standards. So when people came in, they could trust that what we were doing was with you know legitimate medications. The aftercare was there. I was here 24-7 and I suppose run on a more of a medical basis. So then, um, yeah, so I had this crazy idea to set up my own place and I actually had no idea what to do at all. And um, looking back, I don't know whether it's something that I would do again Mm -hmm. because it's, um, I think I had this vision at the time and other people might feel it too. And I actually heard, I was talking to a neighbor who's a psychologist who said something similar. So the plan was that you set up your own place and then you have this passive income and you can work less. And you know everything runs while you're off sitting at home having coffee with the children. Mm. You know, for me, it's been the absolute opposite. I probably work more. I work more and get paid less than I would do working for someone else. Um, and um, yeah, so there was everything at the beginning. I obviously had to find a building to work from and um, even identifying that you had to consider passing traffic, the cost of the the lease, you know, whether to buy somewhere or to lease somewhere, whether to be in a, you know, a main road. At the time, people didn't want to be seen having aesthetic sums. So at the time I had to be visible, but also quite hidden, um, which was a challenge. Then obviously getting the building through council, the whole setup. I mean, I remember at the time I had to get, I wanted a phone system. So in the rooms, so in my room, I could phone the receptionist. Um, and I had no idea how to, how to set that up. So I had to go through a few, a few, uh, meetings with people where I'd go and discuss things with them, like the phone setup. And I'd had no idea. So I sounded horrifically naive, but then I would learn from that. So then when I went to my next meeting with the next person, I sounded as if I knew stuff because I had some uh, <laughs> questions to ask them. And then the third person I'd go to, I sounded like an expert and I knew what I was talking about right. and kind of work out the systems I needed by trial and error. Did you have um, any concept of the aesthetic, what it wanted to look like, feel like, how many rooms? Um, you know, had you had you ever been to another clinic and you thought, oh, wow, I really like the feel here? Or did you sit down um, with the designer? How, how did that process work? Yeah, I didn't. I had a bit of a vision in my mind. But again, being quite early on in the industry, the only place I'd been to was the place I'd previously worked at. I hadn't been mm. to any other clinics. But it would just came down to cost as well. So I was, I didn't have investment or anything. I had to build the place up from scratch with, with my own money. Um, I didn't have a, a lump savings. Um, so for me, I had to you know, work two or three jobs mm. and whatever money I was getting in, I was putting into the business. So I ended up buying a, a house. It might actually, it looks more like a rundown shed. It wasn't, <laughs> it's a real beachy. It, and my plan was that I'd maybe have it for two years and knock it down and rebuild it. But that's not come to fruition just because of the expense and the time in, involved in that. And I'm nowhere near, 10 years down the line, I'm nowhere near where I thought I would be. So I ended up having this rundown house and I literally just 
made one room up and so clients would come in a little reception area and one room so clients would come into the reception area and I would have one room functioning and I literally just painted it white and put simple furniture in there from Ikea Mm. so it's very black and white and wooden so like a like an Ikea I suppose um and then as I suppose I developed the business and I opened up more rooms and then it wasn't until about two years ago that I actually had the cash flow to get an interior designer in and redesign it and refit it out. Mm, okay. Yeah, so it, it took time. So where did the original lump sum of money come from that you needed to like buy the house, buy the buy the place and do the original fit out? Was that just yeah, much savings uh, you had or did you get a loan? Or uh, Just from working. So right. um, I suppose I had about, a year when I was looking for somewhere and during that year I put things aside. So um, for the house, I think I needed about 30,000 mm-hmm. for the deposit. And then it sat, it took me a year to get it through council. Mm-hmm. So during that year, um, just on a budget, my husband and a like dodgy tradie <laughs> um <laughs> Did um did work on the interior literally it was literally like a smoke and mirrors um getting it up and running on a on a budget so I would work so I worked a GP in the day and then I did uh, after hours GP at the weekends and at night to get the extra money wow. so literally as I was getting that extra money in it was, it was paying for it and mm. it was a bit of a hurdle that we had that year with the council not getting it through but actually that worked in my favour because it allowed me to kind of trickle. Mm. The money and gradually to get it up and running. I've got a major yeah. announcement. I'm moving to Torquay. You only 30 grand for a deposit. Well, <laughs> now it's not. I've made the money now. <laughs> Bizarrely, out of like all the things you've done in regards to the business, I think the main the the main investment I've made is in the building. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I've made my money. The business is probably not worth anything, but if I sold the clinic now, the mm. building, yeah. I think that's where I've ironically made my money without even, yeah, meaning to. So ha- have you expanded out into the full house now? Is it still smallish a setup? Yeah. yeah, we have. So we had one room initially and now we've got one, two, three, four, four or five treatment rooms right. and potential. There's still a little part of the building where we've got quite a big office in the kitchen and there there is potential that I can um, convert that to if I need another treatment area, move things around. So your, your business is, is quite unusual in that you offer a fairly broad scope of treatments. So most people that are in the aesthetic space just do aesthetics, injectables, mm. maybe some skin. So you do cosmetic injectables. You've got cosmetic skin treatments. You've also got skin cancer side that you do as well. And now you've also moved down, well, not now, but looking on your website, you have a functional uh, G, is it a func- functional GP or nutritionist? Functional nutritionist. Yeah. Um, and so obviously you're looking at things holistically and this is something that Jake and I have spoken about and people mm. I'm talking to around the world are starting to wrestle with the idea of creating a multidisciplinary clinic that sort of starts to engage all those different areas together and, and sort of treating people holistically, which I think is, an, mm. is, is a good move. So what was the concept behind that? in terms of offering all that such broad range. And then my question around, particularly with the skin cancer patients and the aesthetic patients, are they completely different patient profiles and and do they cross over and and how does that work? Because I guess the way you market and advertise your business, to my mind, you could be looking at completely different demographics. Yeah, there's two elements to that. Um, I'll do the 
skin cancer one. So I must admit, our skin cancer patients I do use as like a diversification to cover costs when I need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I suppose when I first opened the clinic, people don't come in the door. So you open and you say you're here and you have this business plan that in the first week, five people will come in and then the second week, they have five people a day and then the third week you'll be booked and well maybe not that quick yeah you have this business plan and it and it doesn't it doesn't work that way so i found when i opened skin cancer was something that people understood everyone was looking for from the age of 15 upwards male female there was no um there was nothing that altered them that it it covered everyone um people understood what it was there was no education required and in the area, it was something that was fully booked. People couldn't get into places for three, six months. So the skin cancer checks, I must admit, brought the money in whilst I was trying to build up the cosmetic patients. So right. I was quite lucky. I didn't really have to ever advertise the skin cancers. That just happened naturally yep. by me just telling GP practices that I offered it. I got that flow of patients coming in. Mm-hmm. And then as things got busier with the cosmetics, I luckily managed to able to get a GP into the, the skin cancer was working. So I got a GP in to um, just do skin cancer checks. And um, I just, I never really put anything into that. That just trickled by itself. But then it did come to the point where the clients were different. So yeah. the receptionists were struggling with the two clients, very different in regards to their demands and their expectations. <laughs> um, and often the two of them together in the waiting room didn't, look good together (laughs) um so but nothing on the client side was ever said and actually i feel the client i did gain clients from doing skin cancer checks it did roll over pretty Mm -hmm. well um and i often found doing their skin cancer check they then i suppose trusted us as a medical practice and then would come to us for their other things so i did and then the skin cancer checks got us through covid and then after covid we did drop them but I must admit, again, in the last four months, we've brought them back again because we have found there's been probably a bit of a drop off in cosmetic patients with the current state of the uh, economy. So they've kind of been our ability to diversify. I, yeah. I, I think it's really clever. Um, I don't know if you know Dr. Sarah Boxley in Perth. She 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 does sort of a similar thing to yourself and seems to work. I mean, we all have skin and we all have these needs. And if it's on your face, then you can start talking about aesthetics maybe or maybe using a laser to improve the scar that you've created so i i think it all dovetails i want to ask you a bit of a tangent question um it's one of my favorite questions for david you've often used the word client not patient is that deliberate i, know. I don't know i actually don't know what to call them um <laughs> and i've realized as i've been talking now that i've been saying client and then i'm and then i'm thinking well i can't change the patient now because that sounds bizarre <laughs> yeah. i can't talk about them too I have, we have this problem too. Hmm. Um, and I've heard in your podcast it being discussed too. I've actually always called them patients. And I've done it that way because, as I said, when I started the business, I've always wanted it to be medical. Hmm. And I feel really strongly that we're using, like I'm doing medical procedures and yeah. I'm, I'm running it. I run the clinic under RACGP standards, um, accreditation standards. I feel the, the care, the infection control, the aftercare, the way I do the, everything is exactly what I should be doing to a patient. And, yeah. and calling them that way has everyone's mind in the clinic that that's what we're dealing with. I think that the flip, it is confusing because 
it's definitely more of a retail business. When you're looking after these patients or clients, there's a different expectation. They come in, they want an experience, they want different, you know, that they're well, they fit, they haven't got a problem that you're trying to heal them. make better for them. Yeah. Yeah. They're coming in like buying a handbag. They want a good experience, a good product at the end. They want to look like it's like getting their hair cut. So it's difficult too, because when you start talking about them like clients, there's potential drop in the customer experience that they, that they want. Yeah. And that's why I asked, because you said yourself that the patients look different in your waiting room and, mm. and the expectation is different. So maybe there is a difference. I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, most skin cancer patients are going to be older. You don't see many I mean, that does happen, but you don't see younger people generally with, with skin cancers, you know, BCCs, SCCs all over their face and neck because they haven't been exposed to the sun for all those years. So I would imagine that, you know, your, your typical aesthetic patient, client, is probably between the age of, you know, 20 and 50 and your skin cancer clients are probably like 40 to 80. Probably, You know, that's probably, if I'm just sort of guessing, that's probably, so you're going to have a huge difference in just the aesthetic of those patients, older, younger. Mm. And so that's why maybe it feels a little bit mismatched. But I guess there would be crossover. You would have older old skin cancer clients potentially or people that have got them a little bit younger that have been cro- crossover to aesthetics. But I, I think they are very different groups when you look mm-hmm. at them as a whole. What, what, what if your receptionists or, or um, other staff flagged about that sort of dynamic and did they have any suggestions of how you might restructure the patient journey or the flow or communication? In regards to the yeah. having the skin cancer and the cosmetics together? Yeah. It's usually in their, how they talk to receptionists. So we usually find the cosmetic patients are a lot friendlier and nicer. The skin cancer patients treat us a little bit like a GP practice. Mm. So they can be quite aggressive and demanding and like instantly defensive on the phone. And so they don't, they don't like them. (laughs) They hate, (laughs) they really don't enjoy doing the skin cancer checks. Yeah. So I guess. Ultimately, if the income was where you would like it to be, you wouldn't be doing the skin cancer anymore. You would have have sort of jettisoned that from the business model. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I definitely use it as a diversification tool to have a cost to be sustainable. Sure. Mm -hmm. Understandable. And so let's just hone in a little bit on what you've said has happened recently with the economy. This is something I've been talking about for a long time, that there would be a point Mm -hmm. where things potentially slow down for, for a lot of people. I think it depends on how busy your practice is, the depth of your client database, patient database. Uh, so it's going to be slightly different, but I think everyone I'm speaking to has noticed things have slowed down. There's obviously more competition. There's obviously regulations that are sort of in the background, which are hindering some people's ability to advertise and let people know who they are and what they do. I think that that affects people who are newer to the space as opposed to someone that's maybe newer to the industry. So what have you noticed? I mean, obviously patient numbers have dropped. Have you seen people dropping the amount that they're spending as well? Are they pushing out their treatments longer? And then, and this is something we can discuss and maybe um, if there's ideas, I'm happy to share with you. What are you doing to combat that? And what's your plan? Yeah, sure. We are just kind of noticing it over the past couple of months. Mm. I think, well, probably a bit longer than that. We probably noticed it from about October time. So mm. normally our busiest time is September, October until maybe the start of February. And that onset didn't happen. 
we were still booked and we were fine on the day, but we didn't have that future booking. Mm. So normally I would be six, eight weeks booked in advance and that was dropping down. So uh, I was only getting booked maybe two weeks in advance and there wasn't that rush. We weren't getting people. So what was happening? Normally people would phone and say, I have to get in and be really anxious and pushing us to get an appointment um, because it was Christmas and they obviously wanted the treatment done. But we were then finding people were ringing and saying, could they cancel their appointment or maybe do it later because it's Christmas? So mm. obviously the spending was becoming um, at forefront of their mind. And then we were also finding when people coming in, they're on a budget. So normally they would come in and spend, say, $600 on anti-wrinkle or you know, ground on filler, whereas they'd come in with a budget. So mm. they would say, I've only got $300 today or I can only do $200 today. And we, and we never normally got that budget talk. So that's what we were finding. Yeah, at that point, the the budget talk. Well, okay. what do you say to those patients? Like, you know, let's use Tox as an example, and they used to do six hundred for I don't know forty units, and yeah. suddenly you're handcuffed to only use twenty. What do you say to those patients? So normally, it's then just prioritizing their concerns. So I would say that you know, usually if they say doing six hundred, they'd be doing two or three areas, and um, so then I'd make them aware that with their budget, we obviously can't spread it over that large an area, so what's their concern we potentially could only do one area so what's worrying you most is it your frown or your forehead or they'd ask my opinion and um we would i would just address that area so for example just do the frown or just do the forehead and they'd be aware the other areas would be moving a lot of them might book in a month later so they'd say i'll do that now and then i'll wait for next paycheck or i'll come back in in six weeks time and then i'll do the foreheads and um, we'd work around it that way mm-hmm. and so what are you doing from a business perspective to try and overcome that? It might it might be nothing. I'm just curious yeah. as to what ideas you've come up with, what you've tried. Yeah, it's difficult. And this is where I'd actually be open to advice. So mm. I think over the whole time of having the business, the hardest thing is definitely bringing in new clients, getting mm-hmm. busier and getting busier quickly because you, you, know, you suddenly realize you need someone yep. – like next week or in the next four or five months, you need to do something to bring people in. But that quick fix is something that I've never really found an answer to. Mm. I find a lot of things you put in place are slow burners and obviously build up over time. And doing that obviously without offering deals or incentives to bring them in quickly is really hard. What we've done, because it's quite new to us at the moment, it's something we've got on plan to discuss. But what we did initially was bring the skin checks back. So we initially looked to diversify and what we could bring in quickly. So for us, we definitely knew opening up the skin checks would bring people in. And look, I suppose I'm lucky that I could do that. But I think definitely being inventive and being able to diversify quickly is good. So other people who might not be able to do skin checks is looking at what other skills they can do and maybe bringing something in in quickly. Otherwise, our plan... um, we're using the time to train staff so that we find is beneficial. So obviously if they're free and I'm free, we can um, train people. And what we're doing is previously when we used models, we, would use, we wouldn't charge them, but we're actually charging the models, but just reducing the price to allow us to obviously spend more time and to talk and maybe make mistakes or pick them back up again. Um and we felt that can benefit both people. So hopefully we'll get people in at the lower cost, but also upscale, up, um, feel our staff. 
but otherwise, yeah, I'm I'm open to ideas because it is something that mm. is, is difficult. Yeah. Um, well, let me start off by saying the first thing that I recommend anyone does is get familiar with your financials to start with. So mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. what your processes are like in terms of how you capture data, but a lot of people that I that I talk to, there, there, there are some fairly major deficits in them just understanding their business from a financial numbers perspective. So mm-hmm. are you using your CRM system appropriately and to its full capacity? And by that, I mean understanding what your patient retention rate is, what patients are referring other new clients to you or new patients to you, um, understanding your financials from an accounting perspective. So do you know what your break-even point is every week? Um, What's happened to your margin over the last one to two years? Because a lot of people have sort of kept their prices static, but the Mm. costs of everything that they need to purchase to make their business run has gone up. And so there's a number of different things that you need to be looking at. And the first thing I would start with is getting myself really familiar with my financials and understanding where I potentially can cut unnecessary costs because that's something that you that's within your control fairly immediately. Yeah. You're not relying on patients coming in the door, how much money they've got today, but really getting comfortable and familiar with your financials and understanding where you can tighten things up so that you're not under so much pressure. So that's the first thing that I recommend that you do because that can alleviate pressure almost instantly. And I think a lot of the time people have fear and apprehension and nervousness because they're kind of flying a bit blind. They've been having these businesses that have been going on for many years. They haven't really had to delve into the detail of the financial reality of their business because they've been making money in spite of not potentially being across that stuff because it's been such a a gravy train for many people for so many years. And as soon as that stops, people don't know what to do. And so I think that'd be the first step. So I guess my question is how familiar are you with your financial situation? How, yeah. how, how diligently do you use your CRM system and do you have all those metrics at your fingertip that allow you to sort of instantly know what's going on with all the different levers you can pull in your business? Yeah, we're pretty, we're not too bad at that actually. Yep. And that is, yeah, I forgot that is something that we did at yep. the beginning. So we, um, um, we've actually got a really good retention rate. I'm pretty happy with that. Um, we're in the, um, by late 70, like 78, 82%. Yeah which is really good. We do find when we get people in, we, we tend to keep them. Yeah. That's massive. That's great. Anything above, yeah, really anything good. above 50, 60 yeah, is really good. Yeah. Great. And then we, um, yeah, we went through all our costs. So we went through everything that we spend, I suppose, every month to six months yeah. and, um, try to reduce everything as much as we could. The biggest thing, interestingly, um, that we're definitely overspending on was stock. Yeah. And I think that's, Again, it was something that was being looked after by our reception, like a supervisor, I suppose. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so she would tell, uh, we had a system where she would say that she needed stuff and the manager just, I suppose, ordered that. But there wasn't that second step. So when we looked through the stock, we had like we had so much stuff. <laughs> so we really reduced what we were spending on stock and brought that back and uh, obviously used up what we had um, and repurposed things. We also looked at um, the cost of things. So obviously any suppliers that we were buying through, like compared costs because um, we hadn't done that for about 18 months and managed to make some savings, yeah, cut things that we weren't actually using anymore. Okay. So we've spoken mm. about understanding your financials, which you're on top of. You understand your patient slash client retention rate, which is great. So you're already ahead of a lot of people that I talk to, not everyone, but 
Mm. A lot of people just haven't had to think this way before. So it's not a criticism. It's just there hasn't been a need. Yeah. So that's great that you are. So other things, advertising is difficult, right? Because we've got all mm. these regulations that are now coming in and they're forever yeah. getting more difficult. And I think they're probably going to continue to go down that path. It feels like that's the momentum shift is that I think the regulators see this as a industry that's out of control that they want to get control of. So mm. I, I do think that there will be more coming. Some people disagree with me. That's okay. I guess we'll find out in the end how it all how it all turns out. I hope that I'm wrong. And then so the other issue that you've got is patients lowering their basket size, so spending less. So mm. I guess have you looked at things that you can offer? So you said you brought the skin therapist or the dermal therapist back to start looking at things that can still make people feel good. They feel like they're getting pampered. They're getting mm -hmm. a nice aesthetic, out aesthetic outcome, but perhaps it's a little easier on the purse string. So have you explored different treatments that you could bring into your business that will still make people feel and, and look good without the same expense that can sometimes come with injectable-only treatments? Yeah, sure. We do, um, especially as you brought up before, we do offer quite an array yep. of treatments and sometimes I actually worry that we've got too many. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit um, like having that mm -hmm. restaurant menu of too many things yeah. and then um, it's overwhelming. But yep. The way we get around that is we try and encourage everyone to or most people when they come in they have a consultation first and we just try and get them on a treatment plan that encompasses everything with in regards to anti-aging and healthy skin and that inside outside approach we do have treatments from facials all the way up to threadless so we've got that whole mm -hmm. array of, of prices again it's the advertising and getting yeah. them in but i suppose on the lower end of the side like the non-tga approved things like facials mm -hmm. um that was one of our things that potentially looking at whether we start promoting those mm -hmm. a little bit more sure i think that's I a think great people I, in doing those I, th I think that's a great idea i think that um mm -hmm. do you get feedback from your from your patients as well in terms of things that you could be doing better in your business feedback around certain members of your team because that's something that i found incredibly difficult was mm -hmm. knowing What's actually going on in that treatment room? I'm not in there. I don't know how that consultation's going. So studying your numbers and looking at outliers. So if you've got a member of your team that's consistently billing lower, that to me was a clue or an indicator that I need to sort of investigate what's going on here. And if you just put the money mm -hmm. aside, put the money aside for a moment and just look at, is that patient getting the correct experience when they're in my clinic? Are they getting consulted correctly? Are they getting the right treatments mm -hmm. recommended to them? is this person trained up enough and, and skilled enough to perform those treatments? Do they care? Because that to me is the, the big thing is the numbers just gave me an indication that someone wasn't probably doing their job properly or they were in the wrong job or they needed more training. So it was generally, it was generally one of those three things. And so as a business owner, if you've got all these treatments going on in rooms that you're not in, how do you sort of manage that process? How do you make sure that every opportunity is being taken advantage of and all those patients that are coming in your business are being consulted correctly and appropriately so that you're maximizing every opportunity from a business perspective for making sure they're taken care of to the best of your ability from an aesthetic mm -hmm. and medical perspective as well. Do you um, suggest mystery shopping? I, I How do you do that? I suggest mystery shopping. That mm -hmm. doesn't have to be a company per se because that costs money. But if you've got close friends and family that understand the industry, maybe they've had treatments before, you can put together a list of criteria that you as a business owner see as important. So everyone's going to be different, but I think there's some basic principles that we could sort of go through. Um, that we agree upon uh, things that you ultimately want to know are being done pro properly. Um, getting a, a cohort of your your satellite patients or your patients that tend to be 
the ones that refer the most. Every business has got their favorite. You know, you've got that deep relationship with with mm. a number of patients who have been with you for a long time. They've got a vested interest in you. They almost become a friend. They'll give you really honest feedback. So just looking for people that you can talk to that can provide you with with feedback as to what's going on in your business. That they have suggestions. So they're almost like little sort of study groups or what do they what do they call those like focus a, groups? Focus groups, like yep. a focus group of, of patients that you can mm. rely upon to give you feedback making sure that your your staff are, are doing everything that they should be doing because when it comes to tough economic times and a potentially a contracting economy and increased competition and regulation you can't you can't afford to miss any opportunities and just to assume that people are doing the right thing is 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 never going to end well so where are you at in terms of, of that perspective and in, in sort of looking at every single member of your team because you're only as strong as your weakest link mm. yeah it is something um no they're really good ideas it is it's something like I'm aware of, but I'm not very good at implementing it. And I think I think it's a couple of reasons. One, one is I'm not sure how to, mm-hmm. and then I suppose it's how you manage the information that you get. Yeah. Um, we do interestingly, as I said, we uh, run to RAC GP standards, and we used to have a bit of a GP practice mm-hmm. that I ran to. And with that as part of the standards, you had to um, every three years do like a a multi feedback so on the doctors you had to get i think it was 20 or 30 patients to actually fill out a questionnaire about the doctor um and um the staff had to do it too um which did actually really help Mm -hmm. but i haven't actually done it within the oh i like we did it once maybe eight years ago within the clinic too um and then yeah and we do also do um performance reviews so we normally do that obviously when they first start mm-hmm. and then uh, I think it's at three months and then at six months and then annual uh, with the staff too. And we did go through a stage where we used to do monthly um, like one-on-one meetings with the manager and look at their how much money they were bringing in mm-hmm. um, and I suppose understand uh, those numbers and if it was where we needed them to be or whether we, yeah. okay. if it wasn't, why. Yeah. Um, but all of that was, is something that, not really happened over yeah. the last year um and um it's let's say it's then it, it's not been with the from the patient side it's from yeah. the therapist yeah. enough okay i want to ask uh, both of you this question maybe i start with caroline so i was speaking to a dermal therapist yesterday who works in a traditionally very busy clinic and they're pretty dead at the moment and because she's employed rather than myself i'm a contractor mm. I got the impression, I don't want to colour everyone with the same brush, but that because she's employed, whether she was busy or not, she's going to get paid. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. there wasn't much of an impetus from herself to do anything about the the lack of being busy. So she Mm -hmm. actually said, oh, I'm so dead. I'm going to suggest to the boss that I just do half days until it gets busier. And I was like, oh, okay, that's really not going to help you. Um, Why don't you maybe sit down and do the most you know, boring stuff that needs to be done, like relook at the website and make sure it's written properly. Make sure the services are there that you're actually doing. Why don't you start a blog? Why don't you um, look at all of the database over the last year and see who hasn't come in in the last six months and target them with an email or uh, even maybe a personal phone call for those bigger spenders who maybe haven't been here. There's lots of things that you could do with your time when you're quiet, but if you're employed, they Mm. don't want to do it. Mm. So what's your experience, Caroline? 
Yeah, it's hard. Um, we have both. We have usually our nurses are contractors, and but in the past we've had nurses as employees and contractors, and our dermal therapists are employee. We every time we employ someone, we go through the same discussion as to whether to have them as an employee and contractor and there's pros and cons on both sides mm. the, sometimes the issue can be the same with contractors though if they haven't got anyone here they just go they don't stay around to actively seek their own business yeah some of them do still see that the percentage that we're taking means that that's our role our role is to bring them in the business not them um so we can find it both ways Often having them as employee does mean that we can you know, deploy them into other roles within the business that we need help and support with. And I just find it really depends on that person as to how willing they are to do that. Uh, we've had staff in the past that are really happy to help and they want to see the business progress and they want to get busy and they understand where we are. Um, so they're happy to do other jobs at that time. Um, and then others who we get you know, looked at as if, they're 14 years old and I'm their mum telling them to do something and they roll their eyeballs and, and don't do it. Or if they do it, they F it up because mm. it's um, you know not what they wanted to do. So they have a little sulk. Yeah. Mm. I know that you're going to say people are lazy and, and <laughs> don't want to do it. They can be. So let's, let's, let's start at the beginning. So every group of people needs a leader, whether that be an army, a hospital, a private clinic like yours. People need strong leaders and, and especially in difficult times. So I'll sort mm. of just preface what I'm going to say from that perspective. Mm. I think that first of all, you need to make sure you've got the right people on the bus. Do you have the right people in your team? Do they care about you? Do they care about their business? And do they value their job with you? And, and do they see a long-term career with your business? Let's assume for the sake of this discussion that the answer to that question is yes. You need to get actively, actively involved with what's going on on a day-to-day. -day. I'm not saying you're not, I'm just saying I'm, this is a general advice that you need to get involved with the day-to-day -day activities of what's going on with your business rather than just what's going in your room and, and looking at things from reports and, and spreadsheets because you actually need, need to get down into the detail of your business. So when times get tough, this is when people need strong leadership to help move them through that. People need to be aware of the situation. There's no point sort of pretending everything's amazing and it's all great and there's no problems. People understand that we've got an unusual world at the moment and, thing, and things are challenging. So not to have conversations that make people panic, but just to say, hey, we're in a competitive space. It's a tough economy out there. We need to pull together as a team to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make this business as successful as possible. So I would look at having weekly meetings with the team um, probably on a one-on-one on -one basis. You might want to, you said you have a manager, an office manager or someone like that. Yeah, get involved with those meetings because you can't assume that someone that's working for you who's in a management role is going to, you need to sort of understand where everyone's at from a psychological perspective, making sure they're performing mm -hmm. and understanding where things are going from driving their performance to another level. So the weekly meetings are really important. Uh, it takes probably 15 minutes for each person. And so those things should be reviewing how they've been going, talking about things that potentially could be done better. Um, recognizing and celebrating the things that they're doing well, um, talking about any sort of unusual situations with client complaints or adverse events or anything that sort of you need to sort of work together through as a team, as a business owner and helping coach them through that, setting goals for what's happening in the next week. People who are potentially younger, and this is not a disrespectful thing, this is just the reality, I, I'm, I'm, I'm this person as well, I, I need sort of short-term goals to work towards. 
And so I think that having expectations around performance, and I'm not sure whether you do or not, um, what people need to be bringing to the business every week from a, from, a, from a performance perspective. And performance means how much money are they bringing in? What is the patient experience they're providing? Are they reliable? Are they punctual? Are they, are they sort of communicating the right way? Are they dressed appropriately? All those sorts of things need to be looked at with great detail on a regular basis. So those weekly meetings are really important, setting goals mm. for them because people need something to work towards. So whether it's a, a team goal that you're working toward collectively and then broken down into what each person is going to bring to the table to help you collectively get there as a goal, letting people know where they're at with that goal, what happens when you reach that goal, are you guys going to celebrate together as a team? So you want people to be in individually performing to the best of their capability. People need expectations set and goals to work towards and they need to be managed appropriately without making them feel choked or suffocated yeah. or micromanaged because people don't like that either. So mm. all the, the delivery is really important and we, you know, we can talk about this offline but these are just sort of general, general, general mm. pieces of advice. Really get involved, involved in the detail with what's actually going on, give people goals to work towards um, and have really honest discussions about where you're at with the team and, and drive that team from the front. And I think that what tends to happen with a lot of business owners who don't have in this space who don't have a lot of business experience is, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but they tend to sort of just bury their head in the sand and pretend that, you know, it's not, it's not tough out there and they don't want to have that conversation because they don't want to freak the staff out or make them feel worried that their job's in jeopardy or that things are really, really bad. It's just about being honest and having a plan and giving people the confidence that you're going to be the leader that's going to take them through this because they're with you for the right reasons. You're providing them with a career and a future and you're going to help take them to that next step. Yeah, I, I'm curious because I, I don't run my own clinic. Um, how does your practice manager sort of operate versus yourself? W what do you cross cover? What do you do uh -huh. separately? Yeah, uh, so we normally have meetings both on the business level and discuss where we are. So um, yeah, we catch up probably weekly and go over all the financials um, and then normally discuss, I suppose, any issues that are uh, any questions, any issues, any problems that we're finding. And then I suppose work together to try and um, put into place a plan as to what we're going to do about that. Mm. Um, and then my manager would put that into place. So she would then explain that to the staff and, um, I suppose manage that plan yeah. and then I suppose you know, the next week we would meet up and assess how that plan's going the good mm -hmm. and bad things about it again what the finances are what we're gonna what's coming and where we're gonna spend that and if we're behind on anything or if we've got money up front um, and then we normally have a like three six and twelve month plan um, that we're trying to trying to work to along those those lines too Mm. Yeah. yeah. Just to um, echo what David was saying, I mean, I've, I've seen everything that he just said in action. When we used to work together at LCA, I I've, I've saw those mm. weekly meetings. I saw the individual meetings. I saw you weed out bad apples yeah. when, when it needed yeah. to happen. So, you yeah, know, I, I think it's a, yeah, it's a good idea um, to have a more frequent accountability of what's happening on the ground. Mm. I mean, yeah. I've seen many clinics and I've worked in many clinics where things just go on for months where nothing happens and everyone's just sort of scratching their head going, what, what is the strategy here? And yeah. there's no, it's, it's almost like there are many people in the team, but there is no accountability for one person to bring yeah. it together. So yeah. yeah, good advice. And the danger as well is, and I've been in this situation, I've made this mistake. So everything that I sort of talk about um, is just, based on my experiences and mistakes that I've made and lessons that I've learned along the way. So when you've got layers of management underneath you that are dealing with individual members of staff and you're not involved at that sort of level, things happen that you don't know about 
conversations happen, things get misconstrued, people say they do things that they haven't done. And so I think that it's important that even if you're not the person that is executing operationally all these initiatives that you want rolled out, that you're involved in these discussions as a business owner. Mm -hmm. Um, just because I think that the manager needs to know that you are across everything. And again, it's about having that conversation going, hey, I'm not here to step on your toes. It's just, you know, you can just say I've got this new business coach and this is what they recommended that I just get a better understanding of what's actually going on in these discussions. I'm not mm. here to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm here mm. just to be more, I need to be more aware of what's going on in my business on, on sort of an individual or detailed basis. And I think that if you have those discussions, people will feel comfortable. For you to start turning up to meetings one day, it'll be like, what the hell's going on? It will just start, freak, it will just start freaking people out. <laughs> so I think you, you, you need to just let people know why you're doing certain things. Be honest. You're not here to make their life difficult. You're not here to micromanage them and start getting involved because you'll, you'll, you'll start to pick up clues. You'll see things. You'll see trends. You'll, you'll hear discussions and you, it'll just change the way that you're thinking and you'll be more in touch with exactly what's going on in the business. The other thing is if you are going to implement change, don't do too much too quickly. Sort of do mm -hmm. one one thing at a time. So if you look at, if you do this investigative work and you work out, hey, that was really good advice and I've discovered, you know, X, Y, and Z about my business. What are the most important things that I need to do right now? Prioritize them and start making small changes. If you start changing things too quickly, people freak out. People mm -hmm. can't deal with too yeah. much change too quickly. So it's about prioritizing, you know, going through your discovery or sort of research investigative phase prioritizing what are the things that you can potentially do in order of what's going to make the biggest difference and then working down in, in priority after that, having discussions to let people know why you're doing certain things um, and then just do it in a process-driven, methodical way. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's something So we did um, kind of do a little bit in the past yeah. um, and it just kind of, you kind of miss a few and then it not got, didn't get back yeah. on track again and we've got different staff now and other things other things get in the way you know the running yeah, the day to day yeah. on the day you've got a meeting something else might happen and it has to get rescheduled then it doesn't and yeah. um yeah but it's um definitely something we've got i suppose more time to um implement now yeah um and it is it is important yeah um something that i think a lot of clinics maybe lose sight of but it, it's kind of obvious who's your dream customer or client or patient whatever we're going to call them like what is was their age what, what what do they want what are the biggest selling treatments mm -hmm. what are the loss leaders what are the treatments that are not doing well and then you can sort of think about how all of that strategy that david's just sort of gone through how you're going to market it how you're going to re-engage or reboot your social media campaign to sort of hone down on that dream customer so who is your dream customer yeah our dream one now is um we go we do a bit older really it's probably more like 40 to 55 year old um, person who, um, yeah, is looking for more, it's hard to know the terms to use now, isn't it? But that more uh, like optimizing health, like yeah. more natural um, uh, optimizing their aging. So um, we then work on everything that's aging, their skin, the volume underneath, explain those processes. And having that more natural look rather than just we just do lips or we just do cheeks. Yeah. Uh, we do full face rejuvenation, yeah, getting the skin back to normal, stimulating the collagen, uh, work on all the aspects of the aging with them. And I suppose that's where the question was earlier, the more holistic thing comes mm -hmm. in because normally that age range we do also work out, for example, they're going through the menopause. So we then can't help it, but we end up talking yeah. about that and maybe helping to manage that. Um, or they might have um, some medical concerns or 
like low iron or other things that are occurring at the time, bowel problems, um, and that's normally where our functional nutritionist comes into yeah. to manage that internal health. I did actually dabble a bit myself in um, functional medicine too and really see the the benefit of that and enjoy it. But as a doctor and being and not many people doing it, it's a lot to do by yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who don't agree with it. So you, you've got to have a bit of a hard skin. Mm-hmm. So the way I go about that is with the functional nutritionist. So she does that work for me and I kind of help a little bit in the background. Um so we can add that element without it being all on mm. me. Yeah. How receptive are your aesthetic patients to maybe forced is the wrong word, but like to, to, to almost have a patient journey where where both of those things can't be ignored. You sort of have to do mm. both. Because you know, if you are going through the menopause, you really can't ignore your hormonal profile, supplementation, mm. and all those other things. So is there a way yeah. of creating a journey where both of those practitioners are involved every time rather than being optional? Yeah, I have considered that. I've kind of looked at whether you know, when they come in, they do see myself, the therapist, mm-hmm. and um, our functional nutritionist. But it's um, I haven't worked out a way to manage that initially in regards to making it financially viable, sustainable. Yeah. But I've found all of us knowing that, so we suppose train within the within the group so if they come and see me I know all the information that the dermal therapist would know and say and I know my information about injectables and hormonal and the functional nutritionist they should get all of that from whichever practitioner they see Um, and so my dermal therapist should be able to give exactly the same plan that in more or less includes the working on the skin and then the injectables and then the internal health as I would, but I suppose just the detail isn't, isn't there, mm. but that would should still be part of their plan. Yeah. Or maybe mm. for example, someone comes for an aesthetic consult and, and you touch on all those things in your consultation and there may be receptive, maybe not receptive. Would there be a way of, you know, remarketing to them after to sort of remind them, re-educate them, put it out on paper? Because sometimes people need a second bite of the cherry to sort of, yeah. for, for the penny to drop. What do you think, David? Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, cross-pollination is just so important to your business. Mm. I mean, do, do you agree with what you said, Jake? Do, do you do you track that? Do you know like what patients to sort of move to different areas within your business? And, and in terms of how you incentivize your staff, do you have bonuses and incentive schemes in place to encourage things like that like cross-pollination between different areas of your business or overall performance so what we have at the moment so we have incentives for uh their no how much money they bring in so i suppose i suppose more like a commission based um or bonus based schemes on kpis Mm -hmm. we uh we do record or make note of rebookings. So yeah. we're, I suppose, pushing that, but that that could be with themselves or with someone else. Mm-hmm. We haven't really found a way. We've been aware of trying to get that referral between people happening, um, but we haven't really found a way to really monitor that and be able to look at the data and reward it. It's quite diff- We found it quite difficult to track, so mm-hmm. I don't know whether there's, you've got, yeah. advice on what, the way to do that what crm system are you using so we use um schedule the 
booking system schedule. I'm not familiar with that. No, I'm not familiar with that either, yeah. actually. So with mm. that one, is that just bookings or can you also do notes and things? So we can't do notes on it. We just use it for booking. Yeah. Um, but with that, we can do um, you know, like email and SMS marketing. Mm-hmm. And then we've got all our financial data on there. So um, individualized. So we can look at everything, look at each yeah. individual team member and what they're bringing in every day and or as a whole and um, GST, like any, anything we need to look at financially, yeah. our average spend, our patient average spend, our highest customer, hmm. customer that spends the most. Um, and with all that data, we can target our email and SMS marketing as well. Mm-hmm. So we can pick certain age groups or certain spends or if they've been in, in the last six months or if they've been in twice in the last year or mm-hmm. once in the last year. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you, if you don't have, you're not sure how to do it through your CRM, there might be a way to do it through your CRM system where you can track mm-hmm. sort of people that move between different segments of the business and run reports. Mm. Um, failing that, you could probably look at doing some sort of manual situation where you get all of your staff to actually write down the names of patients they refer to different practitioners within the space um, and sort of, sort of start tracking it that way because everyone that comes in for an injectable treatment could probably benefit from a discussion with your f- functional nutritionist, absolutely, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and vice versa. So it, it seems to me there's, a, there's an obvious cross, cross-pollination between the skin cancer mm-hmm. one might be a little bit different, but I think between your skin treatments, your cosmetic injectables and your functional nutritionist, there, there is, there's a synergy there. And so every patient should be getting – so do you charge for your consultations? Yeah, so what I normally do, um, yeah, so we charge for the consult. And then usually afterwards, we try and book in as much as we can. But I suppose, as Jake said, there's that group that yeah. when they come out, they might not book or they might book, yeah. for example, their laser treatment that wants to think about the functional nutritionalist, yeah. but we, we don't follow that up. We don't then check that they do that or send them something to explain more about that or try and... Um, remind them that that yeah. was on they do have a, a plan so we we write out a plan for them that they go with mm-hmm. of, um so usually as we're talking we i suppose write what we've discussed so mm-hmm. they can take that home with yeah. them yeah um do you uh, what's the relationship with the nutritionist she contractor or an employee a uh, contractor okay and does she charge for her consultations and how and how busy is she because she might be willing mm-hmm. to yeah, what, what's the process in terms of how she works and how she wants to grow her business within your practice? Yeah, so she works with us and then um, at home, but she definitely um, would be happy to grow. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's worth having a discussion with her around what she's comfortable doing where every patient that comes in for an injectable treatment or a skin treatment gets a complimentary consultation for, you know, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. an initial chat with your nutritionist yeah. that they get as a complimentary service. Um, you know, every patient that comes in for an injectable treatment maybe gets some kind of small comp skin treatment mm. yeah. or something that's, you know, almost too easy, too good to say no to. So actually starting to just make the assumption that people need these things, making a booking for them while they're there, making sure the person that's like, as you said, the nutritionist is happy to see those people. If they're booked out, they're obviously not going to want to see people for free. But if she's yeah. got, if she's got an incentive and she wants to grow her practice, then it seems to me that it would it would make sense that you just automatically make these bookings for people. Obviously, they have the, the option to say, no, you don't want to be pushy, but it's just almost like an right. assumptive thing. You know, great, you're here for cosmetic injectables today. I think it would be great for you to sit down and have a chat with our nutritionist. Mm. Um, we can talk about how you're, how you're taking care of yourself on the inside, which obviously have an impact on your skin and, and the way you're going to present to the world aesthetically as well. So normally it's X amount of dollars as a client that comes in or a patient that's here for 
X treatment today. I'm ha- we're happy to give you a 15 minute consultation. We'll put that in, in, in at the end of your treatment. Something yeah. like those are just my words off the top of my head, but yeah, something sure. you know you can yeah. deliver <laughs> in, a, in a more articulate way that's in line with the way that you communicate with your patients. But I think those are the mm-hmm. sort of strategies that I'll definitely be looking at. Yeah, I think that works really yeah, well with skin as well. I mean, most of our yeah. aesthetic patients uh, may be a bit more understanding that skin can look and feel better, but maybe they haven't quite gone down that journey. So again, if you've got employed dermal therapists or employed skin team who are sitting around doing nothing because you're not busy, it's super easy to do a little, like yeah. you said, mini consult or a free vizier mm. or a free yeah, or something. A mic- or a microderm or any, like if they're sitting there, you're paying them whether they're seeing a patient or whether they're not seeing a patient, yeah, exactly. you might yeah. as well get them to do something that's not going to cost you a lot of money from sort of like a input cost, like, you know, like peels yeah. might cost money or if you're doing anything that's not going to cost you money other than the time of your therapist actually there. Mm. Get those patients in, give them give them a complimentary treatment if you've got the time. Mm. And, you, you know, a certain number of those people, you're not going to hit a home run every time, but a certain number of those people are going to go, oh, that was really nice. I'm looking for another one of those. And maybe, you know, how much do you charge for a micro? Uh, we don't do micro. Okay. So what, what's, um, what's a nice, easy skin treatment that you do that most people what's get? What, sorry? What's, what's like the, your entry-level skin treatment that you do at the clinic? What are the Yeah, th- so be a facial or a, or we've got hydro, uh, hydrofacial. Yeah, and do they cost you much to perform? No, so a lot of them, yeah, the consumables are probably only 30 to $50. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, whatever you cost you the least amount of money to do, if your therapist is sitting there, just book your practice, mm. give it to your patients. A certain number of people will just love that. And it's something that you can then start doing where they might say, I can't afford my toxic quarter, but you know what? I really love a facial. Mm. Yeah. Or, so or maybe yeah. even if you have an LED light that, you know, you've already hopefully paid off the cost for, you can just yeah. comp maybe your filler patients, yeah. you know, a free, I don't mm. know, 13 minute thing under the light just to get them used to, oh, this is a, yeah. this is a really nice experience. So maybe they'll buy a package eventually, just yeah. things like that. Yeah. Or they'll talk to a friend. If you do something nice for someone, there's sort of like this need for them to do something nice back for you. So it sounds yeah. a bit manipulative, but it's just understanding <laughs> the, way, the way human nature works. When you do something nice for someone, they want to return the favor. So if you've got the time, it's not going to cost you a lot of money. Just I would use all, every opportunity I have to try and get people in to experience different mm-hmm. services within the business. And you'll find that over time, it will translate into more money for your business. It's just a bit of a long game. We, we haven't yeah. actually... Um, we've, been, we've been doing a whole consult. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna, no, <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah. great. I'm sorry for the live mentoring, but hopefully it was useful. <laughs> yeah. David no, was mostly useful. I was probably rubbish. Um we didn't actually get into to, to who is in your clinic. So how many staff do you have and what's yeah. the breakdown of contractor and employee? Yeah, not too many at the moment. And that's somewhere where I've always, where I've kind of, you kind of get stuck, mm. um, which I'll explain. So um, at the moment, there's myself, one nurse and one dermal therapist. And then we have two receptionists and the practice manager. So six of us. Mm-hmm. For me, that's probably the smallest team that we've had. And yeah, it's that balance. I would really like to upscale, but there's always that kind of zone in the middle where the cash flow to enable you to upscale. So, you know, when you initially upscale, you end up losing money. Yeah. Um, it's getting over that hurdle to <laughs> be in a position where you the staff that you've got are, are covering all the costs. Now, you obviously bring in other mm-hmm. staff and then you need extra everything for them rooms consumables everything you need in the room and then potentially uh, that increases all your costs in regards to bookkeeping and accounting and if you need more staff um yeah i had uh just before covid we had four nurses a dermal therapist 
And then during COVID, we obviously cut down. And then it's been a bit slower because then I got pregnant with another child. So I decided to keep the business quite small to try and help me enjoy a maternity leave. And then my youngest now is 16 months. So I'm probably now at the stage where I'm looking to upscale Mm. again. Um, But we're at that stage where who we've got has how busy we are has reduced. Um, mm-hmm. So I've probably got to hold on hold on to that at the moment and just work on getting what we've got busy and functioning. Yeah. Your staff should be bringing in roughly three times what they cost you. Mm. So if someone costs you $50,000 a year, they should be bringing in one hundred and fifty. That's kind of the number yep. I always – people might have different numbers. That's not sort of the, the holy grail of, of sort of metrics, but it's just what yep. I've always used and a lot of my friends in business have always used is that three times because once you pay your tax – you know, mm. all that kind of stuff, the cost of having me there, the insurance, yeah. like their wages, like you, you want to, that's the metric you should be working on. So that's how you kind of get an understanding of if someone's actually bringing value to your business is what's their cost to sort of income ratio for you as, as, yeah. as a business owner. So that's kind of a metric that might be useful for you. Can, can I ask, yeah. it might sound like a, a dumb question, why do you want to expand and have more stuff? What, what's the goal? What's the vision? Yeah. I know that's something I asked myself as well too. <laughs> like, what's the point in that? Yeah. I think, um, right. I think, I think my vision, it changes with age and I suppose where you are in the business. To be honest, at the moment, I think when I first opened the clinic, you obviously being younger have higher expectations and goals. And I suppose at that time, the aim was to have clinics and take over the world. <laughs> uh, definitely. Being now mid-40s, having three children, my ideas have changed. And I suppose the reality of what that would involve Mm. in regards to it doesn't become a passive business. Your workload just gets more and your stress gets more. It's probably not – that's not what I want now. Maybe upscaling is the wrong word. I think it's more the exit plan. So what I need to do, what my plan is now is, Look, I don't want to exit at all. So if my staff are listening to this, <laughs> I haven't got a plan that in two, five years' time I want to go. But I'm nearly 45. I should really have a 10, 15-year plan of how I'm going to exit the clinic. And the work that I put into that, I I get back in some way. Like I have a saleable asset at the end of that. Yeah. Um, I feel in the position I'm at, in at the moment, I don't think I've necessarily got a saleable asset or, but well, I have got a saleable asset, but maybe not what the value that I'd be comfortable with. Mm. Um, so I think my aim now is putting into place like all my goals and or what I'm looking at in the future would be that I've got that price that I'd be happy selling the business at mm-hmm. um, and getting to that position. Is that a fair goal? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that there's, there's so many ways that you can go about this in terms of an exit strategy. But I mean, if you just look at the initial goal of having this more of a passive income where you're not having to inject as much and becoming more yeah, of more yeah. of a, so I, I think it's yeah. about like, the, yeah, the end goal eventually is everyone wants to sell their business. So there's not, there's nothing unusual about that. Everyone eventually mm-hmm. has an expiry date where they go, I'm done. I want to go and travel the world and, and do other things while I've still got all my faculties and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I can still enjoy yeah, myself. So I mean, that, that's not, that's not a controversial uh, thought to have. Um, so I think that Working backwards from that goal, if you sort of start at the at the beginning of that journey, is do I have the right people on board? Mm. And so, understanding what drives every person in your team and what their long term career goals and aspirations are. So, do they see themselves as business owners one day? Do they want to be part of of this of this journey with you from a financial um, perspective? And because the easiest thing 
the, the, the thing that's going to make this business easy is for you to sell in the future potentially is when someone who comes along who's looking to buy it understands that if you were to disappear tomorrow, that the business isn't, isn't, isn't going to collapse without your income. So making yeah. the business as least reliant or, you know, and not, not as, yeah, as, as, as reliant yeah. on you as little as possible. Sorry, I've muddled that up. Make it the business as self-reliant without you as possible so that whether yeah. you sort of walked under a bus tomorrow or decided to go to Antarctica <laughs> and never come back, um, that the business is still going to carry on and, and perform quite well without you. So mm. how do you get to that stage is by having the right people on your team who have that long-term vision and potentially do want to be involved in some kind of ownership perspective in the future um, and slowly working towards that. That doesn't mean sort of getting married and giving them shares in your business, but maybe it starts with profit share at some point once they've reached a certain milestone of being in your business for a certain amount of time, proven themselves. So it might start with bonuses, then it might progress to profit share opportunity with a view to potential part ownership or some sort of total sale in the future. I mean, the easiest person to sell the business to potentially be someone that's been with you for five to 10 years that's progressed mm. through all these of these levels of developing the relationship through trust and consistent performance over time is that they might want to take over from you. That's going to be the easiest person to sell to is someone that's already in your business that knows how it works, know how successful it's going to be, how much money it makes and what it's going to look like without you. Mm. Um, that's probably mm. going to be your most obvious exit at some point. But along that, along that journey, you're slowly weaning the business off its need for you and starting to step more into a managerial ownership, someone that's driving the ship rather than, you know, Injecting all day. Injecting, like, you know, you want to be person not the steering wheel, not the person, run, you know, pulling the oars, for example. Yeah. And so I think that's yeah. sort of starting with the end goal in mind then working backwards and it always starts with having the right people and understanding what motivates them and, and slowly o over the years getting to a position where you can step back and do less from mm. an operational perspective and more from a management planning and, and, and driving direction perspective. Can I ask, Carolyn, because we're similar age, what would you mm. do in 10 years' time if you could sell and, and you got, you know, whatever number that is for your little clinic stroke house, mm. what, what would you do with yourself? I don't know, sleep? <laughs> <laughs> sleep for 10 years? Um, I don't know. And look, my husband asks me that all the time and it, annoys me a bit because I feel is he dropping hints that he wants me to reduce <laughs> working um I don't know and that comes across that happens a lot I definitely agree my um as I said my first step and I've we've discussed it is trying to make me not part of the business first but then you know if I'm not doing all the clinical work and I'm more in the business like what is my what's my role then I've definitely got ADHD or something. I cannot be doing nothing yeah. and I have to be stressed and I have to be <laughs> overwhelmed and I have to be busy. If I'm not like that, I'll just create it. So I don't think I'm somebody that could just stop you know someone like that, don't you? do coffees <laughs> all day. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I do enjoy business and definitely I think running a business, you learn so much and I suppose you get to the point that what you're learning and what you're implementing, it can be in any business. It's not necessarily just yeah, it's transferable. This, yeah. My husband's got his own business too. And we have, he's an engineer and mm. we have exactly the same issues and concerns and problems. His business is, is bigger than mine and a product and more well worldwide. So um, there's a hope that his business does better and then potentially mm -hmm. um, we look at other business ideas I yeah. think um, um, so I mean as a doctor and injector do, do you think that you might 
you know, like to mentor people, teach people, step away from the day-to-day hustle and bustle of patients, but actually kind of do what you enjoy but in a different way because you still get paid but it's less pressure and then you your clinic could run in the background and you could do other things yeah i have been looking at that this year actually i've been reaching out to a few of the drug reps and Mm. asking if they want or need any trainers yeah it's something that i've not looked at before so i'm not quite sure how you get into those roles yeah um but i've um yeah put it in a couple of drug reps and as to whether they need anyone or if they don't at the moment, what I should be doing to enable myself to get that kind of a role. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel that having worked in the industry for 13, 14 years, I've got a lot that I could give back and it mm-hmm. would um, be great to have a role like that. Yeah. yeah. So being a trainer is one of my goals, but I'm looking into that for this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's a few people listening, yeah. so maybe you'll get a phone call after this. Yeah, with an op- with a trainer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I feel, um, it, it's just a, it's a totally different environment when you're teaching because you're still doing mm. what you love and you're talking about all this kind of cool stuff but you just enjoy you know you're not there isn't the stress of the business behind you yeah. know and that yeah. day-to-day sort of grind so i think it's a valid option especially for doctors people mm. are always looking for doctors because you can be autonomous and self-prescribe and all those other things so that's something yeah. to look at yeah Gosh, we've covered we've covered yeah. quite a lot. I'm I'm thinking well, we're almost mm-hmm. at an hour and a half, and we've sort of just done most of a most of this has become a con, a consultation. Um, is there anything yeah. else we want we want to cover here from our questions? Yeah. I mean, obviously the new TG regulations. Do you have any thoughts on those? I'll get shot. I'm all for them. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, well, give <laughs> us, give us I'm going to lose all my job roles now. No, no, give us the two minute sort of spin because you know, as um, as we've seen, everyone's been super up and up and arms in the yeah. air, screaming, saying it's how terrible it is. But we have sort of got your opinion on our WhatsApps, and I just wanted to mm. get your get your side of it. Yeah, I think when you look back at the purpose of the guidelines, what the TGA's purpose is. Um, I fully agree with those. And I think the problem is at the moment we haven't seen the full guidelines. So there's a lot of panic when we haven't actually seen what they are. Mm. And I get a bit frustrated that the things that people are panicking about is the things that are going to affect them in regards to their business. And I think the whole idea behind the guidelines is to protect um, the patient um, and to protect the, the, the vulnerable patient. Um, And we should, when we go into our role, if you think back of when you go into our role as healthcare providers, whether that's doctor, nurse, um, therapist, whatever it is, our our aim is to protect the vulnerable. Our aim is to make sure that when people come to see us, we we make sure that they're safe and we um, provide them with good support and the the vulnerable are looked after. And that's what the I feel the guidelines are doing. The hoo-ha appears to be over the problems with the advertising and um, before and after photos and things like that and the language used. But I do believe, I am unfortunately someone that believes that the the advertising that is occurring at the moment is is honed in at the vulnerable and they're not true representations of the of what can happen. Yeah. For example, a before and after photo, we, we don't put up every before and after photo that we do. We only put up the ones that we ourselves are proud of and we think have good results. We don't put up the ones that don't look that good or maybe have gone wrong or the bruising or the swelling or the downtime or photos of the complications. So they don't give a holistic representation of that treatment and the true issues and complications and risks and side effects. So it'd be interesting to see what the whole guidelines say in the long run. Um, And 
I think when there is a change, a change is not necessarily always bad and it gives us a time to reflect on what we're doing. And um, the main people that come through a change are those that see the challenge and um, see it as an opportunity. And there's always some way that you can do it another way. And it'd be interesting to see how we all adapt and um, come out the other side with, with hopefully better kind of support for the vulnerable patient. Yeah, maybe this is surprising. I actually agree with you. Um, mm. The more and more I have taken a step back from Instagram, I hardly post anymore, mm. I look around at what is happening, not just, of course, in this country, but other countries. I actually think a lot of injectors, despite being educational in inverted commas, mm. they're actually creating more drama and more... Mm. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're not actually helping patients. I think they're actually scaring patients, if I'm completely yeah. honest. And if you look at them, do you think that's who I want to be? Like, if you think back to yourself as a 20-year-old, do you think that's the professional that I went into the industry to yeah. to be? It's, mm. it, it's not. Yeah. Um, and like you say, I think a lot of people are upset, not because of what the TGA are actually saying. It's mm. because it's making their advertising harder. Which mm. is the point. That's what TJ is saying. Yes, we don't want you to do that. Mm. We want we want patients to fully understand what they're entering, not just being sucked into what you've told them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't exactly. know. I, 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 like you say, I don't think we actually know what the guidelines are, and no, I'm, I'm happy to be sort of completely do a 180 yeah. and, and say I disagree in six months. So, but I, I'm, I'm coming, yeah, I'm I coming more around to the fact that it, it's too out of control. Mm. And I know David <laughs> is completely opposite. No, he thinks I, it's yeah. anti-business. I, it's not that I, it's not that I completely disagree. I, I think that first of all, first of all, I want I want to understand what what is the data that's that's, that's driving <laughs> this change. Are there people that are getting horrific outcomes and dying and getting adverse events at mm. some uncontrollable rate that is warranting all of this reaction? So I don't know the answers to that, but I'd like to see the data that these decision mm. makers are relying upon to understand what the impetus is. So let's park that can, to the Can side. I challenge that? I mean, not challenge that, but add a spin on it. I don't think anyone is saying that people are dying okay. or being blinded mm. left, right okay. and centre. But okay. I think that patient complaints are becoming more and more common because they're enabled and we well, now have to have... But an, that's, that's complaints across every industry. No, no, but what I'm saying is because we advertise in a fairly loose yeah. kind of fun way... Yeah. Uh, it's it's not the norm for doctors or yeah, of course. Or, or I mean, I think that mm. you know, uh, I, I agree with it to a certain extent. I think that you need to be able to curtail a lot of the ridiculous advertising, people having before and after photos that aren't realistic. Mm. You know, using incentives, find it for like price incentives to drive. I think we agree on all of that. But what I have an issue with is not being able to sort of advertise what you do mm. and sort of talk about the services that you offer. And right. I think that you are going to hurt a lot of people who do advertise appropriately yeah. who are now going to have all these shackles put on them. Yeah. Um, mm. And I think you don't actually make patients more empowered and educated by not being able to talk about what it is that you do and what it is that you offer. So mm. I think in some ways restricting what people are saying yeah. doesn't help the education process. And I think that you make a better industry, and I've said this before, by having better people in the job. So rather than focusing on what rules can we put in place to not use this word or that word, I think, yes, let's remove the silly advertising that is taking advantage of people that's, that's you know, trickery and it's not, it's, not, it's not genuine or honest. But I think the problem starts with who are the people that are coming into this industry? Who are we letting in the door? What 
qualifications do they need to have? How long do they need to study? What does a proper training pathway look like? And I think once you've got a standard that we can sort of all live with and, and agree is acceptable, you're actually going to get better quality injectors in the industry, which will lead to safer patient outcomes. So I think that mm-hmm. all of these rules are put, being put in place. And I think that these government agencies don't talk to each other. I think there's about nine different bodies that sort of govern our mm-hmm. industry. And I don't think they talk to each other. And this is the problem with bureaucracy is that you get these knee-jerk reactions without actually a, a well-thought-out process. And you sometimes these regulations, you've got regulations on top of regulations, and then you actually don't actually make things safe. I mean, these these rules at the moment don't stop, say, for example, a nurse coming into the industry who has no hospital experience, who starts injecting someone's temples within three months or using a permanent filler. That doesn't that doesn't that doesn't address that problem. And to me, that's the real that's the real danger, rather than is someone using the word Botox or saying dermal filler. So that's kind of so I agree partially of what you're saying, but I just get back to what is the problem we're trying to solve. And to me, the problem to solve is we need better quality people with better training and an agreed standard before we start taking all these other these other steps, which I think are just going to, people are going to find ways around them. It, you know, you're going to have people that comply that don't comply. You know, how much bandwidth does the regulator actually have to enforce this stuff? These are all questions I don't know the answer to. Mm. But I think it all starts with, you know, if you bake a cake with shit ingredients, you're going to get a shit cake. <laughs> so I think yeah. we need to put better I mean, ingredients. That, yeah. yeah, that all needs to happen too. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the, the TGA are obviously just only about regulating the goods, aren't they? Not necessarily regulating the doctors that inject. So yeah. obviously their guidelines are just going to be focused on that. And it's the same in all industries like pharmacists, GPs. Yeah. We're, we're not allowed to um, advertise or discuss um, Schedule 4 yeah. drugs and things. Yeah. Um, and yet you can still educate. You know, as, as GPs, you can still educate and people are still aware that antibiotics are used to get rid of bacteria and yeah. you can about the flu injection and yeah. i'm sure there'll be some ways that you can still educate and bring it out there mm. yeah there might be pettiness over the language but i do agree that the language that we're using at the moment is not a true reflection again of the the product like if we're going around saying have this drug have an anti-wrinkle it's it's their expectation of that medication that that's not true there's a suggestion that it takes away your wrinkles forever like it's it's not it's not a true reflection of the medication. So we do have to be really careful of the language um, the language used. But fully agree as well about the regulation of the people injecting and um, that definitely has to be has to be at some point kind of what i was saying if you've got if you've got a list of things that need to change i would start with the ones that are going to make the biggest impact first start with the one that's going to make the biggest impact and that is getting people better qualified better educated Mm. that's going to lead to that's going to lead to safer outcomes from my Mm. perspective so start with the one that's going to make the biggest difference first but anyway Mm. (laughs) i've heard you say it a thousand times i've got nothing more to add yeah 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 okay final question um what advice would you give aspiring let's call it injectors rather than entrepreneurs if they're thinking about opening their clinic tomorrow or or they're going to do it this year Mm. what what would your biggest piece of advice be to them we've discussed Um, a lot but what would be your biggest one don't do it (laughs) 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 don't do it um goodness that's a tough one i think the biggest advice is to be a is the hard is the hard work i think you go into it thinking that it's going to be easy and that you'll get a passive income and you'll be busy, but you have to kind of give up a little bit of your life and your time to enable it to be sustainable. 
And I think it's being, you've got to be prepared for that. If you're not prepared to put in the work, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, that's the hardest bit. And and that's constant. Look, I'm 10, we, we meet, we've been open for 10 years this year. Um, and I, I still have to work every hour of the day. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm sorry that turned into a mentoring session, but I actually thought it was really good. We, we threw yeah, around a lot good. of ideas and, yeah. and hopefully the listeners got a lot of value out of that. Yeah, um, hopefully. Just a little pitch. If if you were listening thought, oh, I want to do that, you can actually apply to do a podcast with us. So if you just go to our website, insideaesthetics.com, go to the menu and choose join us on IA, then there, there's a route that you can apply. You can tell us a bit about yourself and maybe we'll have you on the podcast one yeah. day. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Caroline. I really appreciate you taking the time and being so open and honest yeah, and, and being willing to share what's going on in your business. I think that no matter where you're at in, in your journey, whether you're an injector, whether you're a business owner, I think everyone could have got something from that discussion. So thank you. And, um, you know, these discussions wouldn't be possible if we didn't have people like you who are, you know, willing to come on and, and bear it all and, and share, your, share your knowledge because that's what we're all about here at IA is trying to raise the industry up, get people to communicate with each other and encourage each other to do better and, and share from our successes and our failures. Totally. I couldn't echo that more. And um, I, I think most uh, clinics, not just in Australia, but around the world are in a similar position. So thank you for being candid and honest with you know where you're at. And, and hopefully some of our suggestions, you and, and others might sort of take forward and let us know if it doesn't work. <laughs> Tell us, yeah. tell us, be honest with us. We're, we're always happy for that feedback. So thank you, Carolyn. It's nice to sort of meet you yeah, properly and, and talk. And hopefully we'll get to see you at a conference yeah. or, or something soon this year. Yeah, great. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been, um, yeah, great to go over everything and get, yeah, get some good advice. I'll listen myself and <laughs> put some things into play. It's our pleasure. Well, nice to talk and have a great day. Thank you. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our Patreon for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.